Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin, Coordinator of Communications and Marketing for Oklahoma State University's College of Arts and Sciences. In this episode, I speak with Jason Bruck, an animal behaviorist in the Department of Integrated Biology. We discuss a variety of topics, including his dolphin research and why there is no simple answer to the question, what is the smartest animal? Jason was recently awarded a Course Hero Woodrow Wilson Excellence in Teaching Fellowship, recognizing his love of teaching and demonstrated excellence as an educator. You can read more about that at cas.okstate.edu. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. What do you do? How do you explain what you do? I guess the best way to explain what I do is I'm an animal behaviorist. So for me, that's about trying to figure out kind of where humans place in the whole scheme of this kind of animal intelligence, human intelligence, not necessarily ranking them because we don't really do that, but trying to figure out the evolution of our own, we call it cognition, but that's basically just learning, memory, attention, basically our brain processes. Um, And so starting to really understand that from a research level. It's great because it takes me all over the world. I get to study animals in all different places. And it's, you know, when you're sitting there and you're working with animals and you're trying to understand them at that level, it's truly can be a humbling experience. And so I enjoy that very much. You talk about traveling all over the world. By the Mm -hmm. time people are hearing this, you'll be in Bermuda, I believe. That's correct, yep. I'll be in Bermuda doing some research with a facility called Dolphin Quest. I've done research with them for the last 10 years. Um, And they have animals that kind of have access to this kind of open ocean area, and we do work with them there. Um, But in this case, the study that we're working on, myself and uh, the grad student I'm an advisor for, she's going to be trying to understand their visual field. Now, the fancy way of saying, what can they see? Where's their blind spots? Um, And so we've built this incredible apparatus that we're going to kind of position over their heads and there'll be little lights on there and right now the dolphins are being trained to whistle whenever they see the little light and then uh, we're going to have this kind of globe of lights that surrounds them and we're going to turn each one on in different places and the dolphins will whistle to let us know if they see the light. The assumption being if they don't whistle they can't see it and so that's one of the ways we're going to figure out kind of what their visual perception is. Why do we want to do that? Well. Uh, twofold. One, dolphins are often victims of boat strikes. So boaters around uh, can actually hit dolphins um, in as fast as we think dolphins are. Um, they can be caught unaware. And so we're trying to figure out is that a function of sometimes not being able to see the boats because the boats quickly moved into this kind of blind spot area. The other thing that we want to do is I've teamed up with our good folks over at SEAT on a project looking at uh, how we can collect hormones from dolphins below samples. So when dolphins come up to the air, they breathe, and they kind of let out a spray of of mucus and water out of their blowhole. And our goal is to actually fly a drone through that, collect those samples, and do a hormone analysis to see about their health. So we call it one of the first uh, true examples of a passive hormone analysis. Um, Why is that awesome? Because it means you don't have to drag them up on a boat and collect hormone data, which is currently how it's done. So this would be a really cool method, and it leverages the two things OSU is really good at, animals and drones. And you talk about not having to take the animals up on the boat, which 
I would assume is a traumatic experience for them. It can be very stressful. And I, and I would assume that there's at least a chance that that's also throwing off the results. It can. You have to collect a hormone sample very quickly after you do something like that. You've got minutes to collect the blood sample before it is tainted by the hormone response of stress. And so we would have liked to avoid that and just collect it from the animals that are kind of swimming in the ocean. They're none the wiser because we were in their blind spot with a silent drone device uh, able to collect that sample. And the fun thing too with, with studying these types of things is it really helps us to get a sense of the ocean health. And so you might think, well, Oklahoma, not necessarily a place that centers around ocean health, but um, it's nice that we can actually be a big enough university where we have these kind of global impacts to our work. And my ocean love and the folks with their drone technology that was originally kind of centered around weather, we've now kind of merged together to find this new application for something that we were already really good at. Um, and it's going to be really important because these animals are health indicators for their ecosystem. If the dolphins are doing poorly, it's a sign that the entire ecosystem is doing poorly. For example, things like oil spills and the chemicals used to clean them might be having long-term effects in an ecosystem. And the dolphins are going to be able to tell us that. Well, and you mentioned uh, an interesting point there. I've been telling people for several weeks that I was going to be interviewing you, and everybody had the same reaction I did. We have a dolphin researcher at OSU. I know. Uh, how long have you been at OSU? Well, I was originally here in 2014, 2015 as a visiting assistant professor. And then I went out to Scotland for two years uh, to the Sea Mammal Research Unit at the University of St. Andrews for my postdoc. And um, the position opened up here, and I, you know, I really loved the faculty in my department in integrative biology. I had such a good time working with them in the past. I absolutely had to apply for it, and I was very happy to come back to work with folks at OSU. And since we do a lot of work with animals uh, in human care, it makes sense um, that we're able to do kind of this dolphin work. We did a project just recently at the Georgia Aquarium, which is an easy plane flight to us. Um, we do that. And plus, you know, the other thing is there's a lot of students here at Oklahoma who have been interested in marine life and just haven't been able to get out to the coast. And they should be able to have an education in this stuff, too. So. Uh, the idea that you don't necessarily have to fly out to San Diego or Florida to get a good education in marine mammals is kind of a cool thing. How do you, how did you get into this field? I decided I was going to be a whale and dolphin doctor when I was three years old. My parents basically kind of gave me the option. A lot of it, we'll get into this later at some point, I'm sure, but a lot of it was kind of the whale watches, the trips to Disney World, and you'd see dolphins there and some other stuff. But my father was a veterinarian. And I just thought, well, he works on the small animals, like you know, horses and, and uh, dogs and cats. And I figure I'll work on the bigger ones, like whales. And so as a three-year-old, that's perfectly good logic. You know, work on the bigger animal, because that's cooler. And it was only later on, as I'm kind of going through high school and then eventually into college, that I realized, well, hey, you know what? There's another way to work with these guys that doesn't involve being a veterinarian, and that's as a behaviorist. So I got very interested in learning about behavior, learning about the, the kind of the giants of the field and, and the cool experiments that they did. And I, got, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do as a whale and dolphin doctor. Just not a DVM, a PhD. 
So I went that route. It was a long way around it too, because um, I actually did my PhD at the University of Chicago, which, as you know, there are very few dolphins that live natively in Chicago. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, we um, ended up working a lot with the Brookfield Zoo out there. One of my committee members when I was getting my PhD, his wife was curator at the time of the marine mammals at the Brookfield Zoo, so that was a nice kind of work around there. And I just learned that there's so much that can be done working with zoos and aquariums um, to answer a lot of important questions for marine mammals in the wild. And so it's allowed me to be a marine mammal researcher for the Midwest, um, which has been kind of a fun thing. But yeah, it was, this was a lifelong dream. And I actually, I mean, I find that amongst my grad students, too, who, who I'm an advisor for. They're all in the same boat for the most part. They wanted to work with marine mammals since very young, some growing up, you know, in, in areas where they were coastal and then came to Oklahoma and still want to kind of embrace that cultural identity they have as kind of these, you know, marine mammal people. And so there is a, a niche for it here, uh, a, little, a little grouping that we have. Um, which is fun. We're, someday we're going to start the Midwest chapter for the Society of Marine Mammalogy, I'm sure. Not, not quite there yet, but a few more students and we'll get there. So you did, you're pointing this out, but you did become a whale and dolphin doctor. Mm -hmm. You called it at three. <laughs> I called it at three, yep. There was, there was some interesting roundabouts around there. My first paying job was actually as a cartoonist. Wow. So for the, for the Syracuse newspapers, I, would, um, I grew up in upstate New York. And so it was um, doing cartoons for the paper, and I was 16 when I was doing that. My dad told me to go get a job, and he thought I was going to work at the grocery store or something. I was like, no, I, I got hired at the newspaper to draw cartoons. He wanted me to do some a little bit of labor and get a little more um, kind of calluses than you know pen ink. For me, it's, it's definitely an integration of the arts and sciences in my life. You said earlier that uh, we don't rank the intelligence. That's right. But I do know, I've heard the question a lot, like what is the second most intelligent creature on Earth besides humans? It seems like dolphins are the favorite at the moment. They, you know, people, there are certain things that you can watch a dolphin do and say, how do people think you're so smart? Because, you know, the other, so one of the kind of sadder things that you'll see Dolphins getting entangled in nets happens all the time. Dolphins will never jump those nets unless they're trained to do it. So you can just do surface nets and they will just stay in there. And you just think, if you're so smart, why don't they just jump over? And the reality is it's not in their, this is a fancy word, umwelt. It's how the animal sees the world, right? Humans have this tendency of thinking that things that seem to think like them are smart. Mm -hmm. In reality, if you are a ant, you have the ability to navigate around in your world simply by integrating all of the movements of your joints and signaling that integration of all those signals to your ganglia. Not even a full brain, a ganglia. You can't do that. The best you can do is close your eyes, lift up your arm, and know where it is in space. That's all you've got there. And yet here's an ant that's able to fully navigate using information from joint cues. I can give examples all over where animals beat us in any of these qualities. A pigeon, for example, will beat you on a test of spatial rotation any day of the week. So this is that task that you, the military used to give you when you were in 10th grade 
kind of those uh, battery of tests, and then they would, if you did well, you get a lot of calls from ranked officers, I'm sure, saying, hey, you think about joining the Army or the Navy or this? And uh, one of those tests was spatial rotation that you'd have to do and figure out what this shape would look like if you rotated it 90 degrees, pick A, B, C, or D. Pigeons do that very well. A chimpanzee, and I invite listeners to go onto YouTube and type in chimpanzee short-term memory because they will be amazed at what a chimpanzee's short-term memory looks like and how we pale in comparison. So the better answer to which animals are most intelligent is, what are you asking them to do? Mm -hmm. If you are asking them to build skyscrapers, the answer is termites, because they build, per body size, the biggest structures. We are second. Uh, If you are asking about long-term memory, which is one of the areas of research focus for me. Um, Dolphins can remember social partners 20 years or longer. We don't know. And there's only some research suggesting that humans can recognize uh, Facebook uh, yearbook photos uh, after 40-some years. So we actually don't know who's got a better memory, humans or dolphins. We're just trying to compare these things across things that we think are important. So it's just, it's way more complicated than ranking broadly. And here's an example, a way to think about it. In a room of, let's say, 20 people, could you sit there and order who were the most intelligent, who's the most intelligent person in that room? Not easily, unless you say, okay, who's the best at playing a piano concerto? Uh, Then whoever has piano lessons could be the most intelligent person in the room. It just depends on how you define it. That's how we have to think about these things. Is there a top tier of animals that you think you would put in there? You just rattled off a bunch, and I would say mm-hmm. I would never have thought ants or termites would enter the conversation. It just depends on what you're asking something to do. Um, it depends on what you value as intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so I will come up with a, a way of thinking about this that might fit better with how people like to think about this. So one of the things that I focus on is how being social as a species drives the evolution of certain brain traits, for lack of a better word. And so one way to think about it is in terms of comparing species on things like how well you remember other members of your group. And so as I said, humans can remember a yearbook photo for about 43 years. And then after like 44, 45, 46 years, Uh, senior citizens won't be able to determine whether that face, a a particular face, is someone from their graduating class or not. And so we can compare animals that way uh, on this common trait of social memory. And as I say, dolphins do very well. uh, Orangutans don't do very well. They're not very social. Um, They actually have solitary lives. Uh, Chimpanzees probably will do well, but we haven't tested them yet. Elephants, surprisingly, not tested. Elephants have the reputation as having the best memory. We have not systematically tested elephant memory. So we know more about dolphin memory and and orangutan memory than we know about elephant Mm -hmm. memory. So on that one scale, I would say, okay, animals with complex social systems will score high on this metric. That will include chimpanzees, crows, ravens, parrots, uh, elephants, dolphins, hyenas, possibly, mm. uh, because they all have a social, similar social system with humans, which is called fission fusion. 
basically think of your Facebook account as the social system. There's some overlapping Venn diagrams, there's some overlapping circles of social groups, and some people are friends with somebody, and this person may or may not be friends with this other person. That's how dolphins and chimpanzees and some of these other primates, that's how their social systems are built. So they have to get smart at remembering who individuals are. Then the question we're interested in is, just because you know who everybody is, does that make you generally smart? Can you then pick up tools and, and solve puzzles because your brain had to grow to a level of complexity to just remember who everybody was? Therefore, you now can do these other things as an add-on. And that's kind of one of the questions that uh, our group is very interested in. You were also talking earlier about, uh, I think you called it humbling, to try to essentially test the intelligence of creatures. I know that, well, you even mentioned this too, testing the intelligence of humans is imperfect. Yeah. I mean, how do you determine a genius artist versus a genius writer versus a, somebody who can remember everything they've right. ever been taught? What do you do to test the intelligence of creatures? It has to be, and I keep saying creatures, but animals. Yeah. They, it has to be unique tests all the time. How hard is it to come up with, here's how we're going to do this? It's very hard. As an educator, I think about this in very similar ways. What kind of test am I going to write for my students that gets out of them the information that I think is important? It's, and for when you're working with animals, it's very much like being a kindergarten teacher. Because not only do you have to develop the test that's interesting for the animals, because you have to keep their attention. This dolphin is free to swim away and not participate in this study. We don't force them to do anything. They're, you know, 750 pound to 1,000 pound animals. They can do what they want. So you always have to design studies that are not only getting at the question you're interested in, but that they're going to want to participate in. And so we find that doing a lot of playback studies where dolphins can play telephone with other dolphins that they know, that's something that keeps their attention for a long time. Um, their dolphins are very uh, interested in chemical signals, so taste signals, so we do some social taste signaling stuff. Um, I won't go into all the details of that. Um, <laughs> it's, you can imagine, though, what we're asking them to do. Yeah, it's a constant process of being almost a kindergarten teacher and a scientist trying to develop these projects that really do get at intelligence but also get at attention. We want the animals to pay attention to what we're doing and to participate with us. So, you know, people have this idea sometimes about how animal research goes. That, oh, you take these animals and you force them to participate in what we're doing. And, and a lot of times, especially with something called, we call the groups the charismatic megafauna, which is a nice way of saying the animals that are uh, typically thought of uh, in terms of your very basic, you know, third grade zoology books, you know, the dolphins, the chimpanzees, the elephants, those kind of things. Um, you are very limited in how much invasive work you could do. You don't do typical like brain scans or typical uh, heavy biological work, so you really do have to design games for the animals to participate in. But yeah, it's, inc it's incredibly challenging. How do we come up with it? We really think about the problem. We come up with solutions for how to address that question and then we say to ourselves now all that hard work we did are the dolphins actually going to participate in what we think they might and if the answer is no we go back to the drawing board if we think there's a good chance we try it and then go to the field and find out maybe it doesn't work mm. so that's the more expensive way of 
dealing with the problem. Hopefully we can kind of think through it ahead of time. You made a point earlier that people tend to sort of rank animals' intelligence by the ones that are most like people, mm -hmm. which I do think is true. Uh, I think to me, I think to most people, another aspect of it is sort of the personality of the animal. If we can see a difference, and mm -hmm. for dogs, for example, anyone who's ever been around different dogs mm -hmm. will tell you this one is like this and that one's like that. Do you think that the animals that we as humans can observe more difference in their personality is part of that factor? And also, what is the personality of a dolphin like? Okay, couple questions there. So the first issue on dogs, this is gonna blow everyone's mind. Your domesticated dog is the dumbest version of a dog there is. The smartest dogs out there are the wolves. So your impression of your animal's intelligence, of your dog's intelligence, and I, believe me, I have a dog named Skye. She's a wonderful dog. I and think brilliant. She's, the, she's brilliant every time I, I, I assess it, and then I find out, well, actually, no. Um, when you look at the data, it's the, the actual measures of intelligence goes to wolves almost every time, even on just brain size, convolutions of the brain, so how many times the brain folds. Uh, wolves have domesticated dogs beat, but everyone's going to sit there and say, but yeah, but when I tell her to do this, she does that, and my wolf won't do that. Well, of course the wolf won't do that, because the wolf's too busy contemplating more important things for a wolf need that, you know, what they need to contemplate. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, specifically bringing up dogs. Now, on the other front with um, dolphin personality, there are some dolphins that absolutely want to do what we want to have them do. They are in the game. They are focused on us. They follow you around, uh, even when you're not running an experiment with them. And then there are other dolphins who could care less. That to me is the biggest issue regarding what we would call, we don't call it personality, we call it behavioral syndromes. That's the sciencey way of saying personality. Where the animals behave consistently differently than each other. Mm. But it's very hard to gauge what is a personality in something that we doesn't share our mindset. Mm -hmm. So it can be complicated to say exactly personality. Yeah, we call it a behavioral syndrome, and for us it's a strong predictor as to whether or not this animal is gonna play along or not. And oftentimes they are very keen to do so. You occasionally get one or two that are just like, now the trainers that work with them every day know this down pat. They know who's gonna do what. They know if, you know, again, no dolphin is ever made to do anything. Um, that's not how this works. So you have some dolphins uh, I won't give names, but my grad <laughs> students know who I'm talking about, where there's a female who just absolutely, she does her thing, whatever that is. Sometimes that's working with us in research and we're very happy to have her. Other times she's kind of in her own, her own little world, doing her own little thing, and she's just doing that. And so, you know, I think we've had, some of my grad students may have gotten tattoos of her, identifying her as their, their, their kind of their, spirit animal, uh, you know, just having that kind of uh, personality, I guess is, we'll, we'll call it that. So you've talked about some of the animals you've worked with, mm -hmm. uh, and of course we're talking a lot about dolphins uh, mm -hmm. because they're interesting and, and they are interesting. Charismatic megafauna. Yes. 
Uh, you talked about whales earlier. How much have you done with whales? Well, all dolphins are whales. Okay. So here's the tr so people say, well, a killer whale. That's a dolphin, not a whale. Actually, all dolphins are whales, so therefore a killer whale is a whale. Mm. Um, so we will say, I use the term whales as a big catch-all. Mm -hmm. um, I've not done, uh, I think when people think whales, they mean the mysticetes, which is a f the baleen whales, the big ones, the blue whale, mm -hmm. the, um, the fin whale, the psi whale, all those guys. I have not had the privilege yet of working with the big, big whales. I would love to someday. Um, and now the, d the technology is getting a lot better to work with them. Originally it was see the whale, then it submerges for two hours and never see it again. Mm -hmm. Now there's uh, what we call D-tags, where you approach the whale on a boat from the side, um, so as not to startle it, and then you put a suction cup data pack on its back. And then what happens is, is as the whale swims around, it GPS locates where it is in space, and you can actually get a three-dimensional track of where that animal went uh, while the data tag was on its back. So I'd love to eventually get into that type of work, um, but that's long, long time at sea, and that's that's a little trickier to get into. And I think you you mentioned crows earlier, and you mm -hmm. were talking about how pigeon would beat me at what I spatial what, rotations. Yeah, yep. I was I was going to call it spatial relations, but yeah. Sure, same thing. First of all, how do you test a pigeon on that? You train it. Okay. So the pigeon is trained to look, it basically it's like the animal has to learn how to take a test in human standards. So not only is it beating you on that task, <laughs> it's beating you on that task in your human way of thinking. <laughs> That's even more humbling actually yeah. when you think about it that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, the animal's trained to yeah, peck the screen or peck the switch associated with the stimuli or the sample that matches the, the, the demonstration sample. That's how you do it. And we do that kind of, it's called match to sample training. And we do it a lot with dolphins. We do it in chimpanzees. And a lot of species get that type of training. How much work have you done with, say, crows or, or ravens? I haven't worked with a lot of birds. Birds do not agree with me as much. <laughs> and I have credit for all the members of our faculty who work with the birds and are good with that. I have yet to have as much success with the birds. Um, the other things I work with on campus is uh, right now we have the mouse lab. Uh, so we're doing work with a mound-building mouse from Ukraine. And this mouse is a very interesting animal for mice because usually mice do not have biparental care, meaning mom and dad both taking care of the offspring. These mice do. They also build elaborate tunnels. And so we have a giant basin in the basement of Life Science West where we will fill it with dirt and we will let the mice dig. They will have little transponders in their back that's gonna send a signal to an orthogonal array of antennas that surround it and so we're gonna be able to track where the mice dig. Now why do we wanna do that? The interesting thing for us as a department is that we're very focused on ecological factors. So things about the environment that shape behavior and these guys have to work together in these mixed social groups. Are the females doing all the work? Are the males helping? Are the males only helping if the related kin are with them? These are all very important evolutionary questions because the burden of labor in animal societies is expensive. And we wanna know who's taken on that burden to understand how evolutionary processes are shaping this group tunneling behavior that these mice are doing. And uh, these tunnels are quite elaborate. They're very interesting. It's kind of like um, 
it's like having these kind of moles in the lab, but they're very small and they're mice and they're easier to take care of. Mm -hmm. So we're very happy to have them kind of doing that work for us. Do they, do you see patterns in their burrowing? Do they sort of consistently do the same thing? So my student Emily did uh, some pilot work for the Life Science Freshman Research Scholars and uh, she won second place with her poster, so we're really proud of her. And what she found on her initial research um, was that it was likely that the males might be taking it easy while the females do all the work. That is totally different from yeah. humans. I can tell you as a father and a husband, no, <laughs> we don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that might be what's going on, but we don't know yet until we get them into the big tank. Uh, that was only a very limited pilot study so far. And I saw in uh, some of your uh, publications here, you have one that references ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. Are they, I mean, I would think they're sort of similar to large mice as far as what they do. The ground squirrels are very interesting. They have a alarm call system that allows them to indicate different levels of predation threat. Mm. So, <laughs> Just like humans. Sure. Um, the way that this works is if you're a ground squirrel, you're going to take an assessment around you. You're going to look around and say, hmm, how many cousins do I have here? How many nephews? How many nieces? How many sons and daughters? You're going to do a little bit of math in your head about that. And then as a predator comes barreling into your field, you're going to make a decision and this decision could get you killed, whether you're going to make an alarm call. And you'll give some alarm calls for aerial threats that are impending doom and other calls for like a coyote running through the field. That takes a little longer to get to you than a flying predator. And this is a really important system for us because it helps us understand uh, why animals are doing these costly behaviors that can get them killed. Um, because if you just look at that behavior, if you just watch this animal sacrifice itself and get killed, making this alarm call, you're going to think that is either a really dumb animal or that is a behavior that natural selection should get rid of very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yet it persists. And so we call this concept inclusive fitness. The idea that animals not only consider their own genes getting into the next generation, but the genes of their close kin. And so that's why ground squirrels are a little different, but a really important system to study. Um, what I was interested in when I was working with ground squirrels in the Sierras in California, um, we were trying to figure out w how they were navigating. So one of the interesting things about the ground squirrels there that we found in that study was if you are a ground squirrel, same species, this is the Belding's ground squirrel, and you are born in a wide open field. That is how you will see the world. Okay. If you're born in the forest, you will pay attention to local cues. You will pay attention to trees and little bushes that are really close to you. And if, again, if you're in that open field, you're going to be paying attention to the mountains. That's what you're seeing. Then we raise them in indoors. We, they were born indoors. They were cared for indoors, and then we put them out in a, in a maze test. And it turns out it doesn't meet, it doesn't have anything to do with your experience of the environment. You will be that way because you were born into that population. So we say that that's a heritable difference. 
that stays with you. So even though they're the same species, they're probably having different genes that are regulating how they pay attention to these features of their environment. Wow. So that was what was cool. That was what the real interesting finding of that study was. That's interesting. And uh, I see something about guppies. Yep. And of course, in all the small fish, the you know sort of standard joke is, oh, they have three-second memory. Not true, right? Probably not true. Not true in any meaningful way. It's just when you somebody does a study shows that the animals are having some difference in their ability to convert a short-term memory to a long-term memory. These are very gross terms for things. Mm. Actually, I'm just using terms that the public will have a better sense with. But the idea there is that um, fish actually can be trained. You can train your fish, to, and there's, again, YouTube videos. If you want to, don't believe me, you can watch them. They're <laughs> not doctored. I, I verified it. But you can train your fish to play basketball. That's long-term memory. Um, there's just some weird things about their, how they process short-term memories that got them that reputation. But no, they have a better memory than three seconds. <laughs> They're not all dory. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and so that that actually is something our 1114 students get to deal with. So this is this publication that we did for the ABLE conference on uh, using 3D printed guppy models for uh, these kind of studies of something called sexual selection. Basically, guppies find certain guppies more attractive than others. Mm. Makes sense. Also like humans. Like humans, yeah. yeah. There's, and there's some similarities there. And so what we do is we give the students the power to determine what variables they think are important in mate choice for the species. And then they get to manipulate those variables by having different 3D printed fish used as these kind of dummies that the real fish get to display sexual behaviors to. So if you're a guppy and you're really into another guppy, you'll do these kind of sigmoid, which is a fancy way, but it's basically like the zigzag dance. Sometimes you'll bite the female if you're a, a really amorous male. Um, you know, they'll also kind of swing some of their fins around to try to impress the female. And so it's a really easy indicator whether or not that guppy was impressed with the model that the student made. And so I actually, I got to give credit to that to when I was here as a visiting assistant professor in 2014-2015, uh, it was my fish bio students who initially came up with this idea. And we just carried it forward to our introductory biology class. And so now thousands of students have now done that lab thanks to an initiative driven by uh, a group of five students in a fish biology class. So it was really nice to be able to have that kind of integration uh, between our classes. You mentioned chimps and orangutans, I mm -hmm. think, earlier. Mm -hmm. How much have you worked with them? Well, with chimps and orangutans, uh, we have a project that we're looking at doing at some point here, and we're just, it's just the time to get it off the ground with chimps, because we want to understand their long-term social memory, too. Now, every organism is going to use different ways of seeing their uh, fellow animals. Um, we say seeing because we see f uh, relatedness and similarity that way. Dolphins hear it with signature whistles, which are like individually specific dolphin names that they name themselves in their first year of life. Um, chimpanzees, just like us, use faces. So at some point, we're going to get this off the ground here, is we're going to look at long-term social memory for chimpanzee faces. 
And one thing we do is we often work with zoos and aquariums on this because they keep really detailed notes about who moves with who. And since these are fission fusion species, they're supposed to move around. You don't want the chimpanzees staying in one place. Um, you want them to move as, a, as, as their social systems would dictate. And so they go from one facility to another, and now we want to ask the question, hey, remember this chimpanzee? Do you still remember him? And we can actually measure their eye gaze, so where they look on a picture and which picture they look at more. So it makes it quite easy to help us kind of figure out how they assess familiarity with uh, other chimpanzees. So that's a project we're going to be getting started at some point. And you just mentioned signature whistles. Mm -hmm. That's something else I wanted to ask you about. So that's like a name. Yes. So dolphins teach each other their own names? Well, here's what happens. So a young dolphin is born. Just before this dolphin was born, mom was whistling her signature whistle like crazy. And she whistles that signature whistle because that's the recall for the calf when she is born. The calf is born, calf hears that signature whistle, that's how you get called back to mom. Now I have seen it where a calf does not come back to mom when mom gives her own signature whistle. And mom will pin the calf to the bottom of the, of the, the lagoon area with echolocation basically buzzing on their calf as, as punishment until the calf listens and finally comes back. So they learn very quickly to come back when they hear that mom's signature whistle. So the first thing a dolphin will learn to produce is the signature whistle of their mother. Over time, they'll hear the signature whistles of other dolphins. And somewhere between that first month and 14 months, they will take parts from all the whistles they've heard in their lives and make their own signature whistle. And that'll be the whistle that, for most cases, they will have for the rest of their life. Mm. There are weird cases where some dolphins have changed things around, but it is not common. And then other dolphins can remember those signature whistles. Um, we've done studies to just find out exactly how much they use them like names. So when dolphins don't recognize each other's whistles, sometimes they will actually repeat that whistle back so in an introductory sense, mm -hmm. so they can do introductions with the whistles. Um, they can call each other with each other's whistles. Now here's the fun thing that a dolphin will do. Since they can perfectly match each other, these dolphins are amazing at mimicry when it comes to these whistles. They could perfectly match each other if they wanted to. They don't. They make little mistakes at the end of the whistle so that, they, so that everybody knows that I'm calling this individual, I'm not this individual. Wow. It's a really interesting little trick that they do. And as a human, that sounds very intelligent to me. Like that strikes me as a it smart move. It is a move. very derived system, is the way we would put it. But they have to have this system. And because they're so social, it is instrumental that they figure out who everybody is. We actually, doing visual studies uh, in St. Andrews, the team in there did some visual work, and they don't think that dolphins are very good at telling each other apart visually either. Hmm. It's tricky for us. I think it's just as tricky for them. So they really do rely on the acoustics um, and possibly chemical cues as well. But what happens here is that these dolphins do all this smart stuff around this because they don't have voices. A lot of other animals have voices, especially in air. Very easy to do it that way. But marine mammals, um, as they go deeper and deeper, their voice gets higher and higher and higher because of the way sound and pressure work on uh, the physics of it, uh, the biophysics of it. So 
they can't rely on that technique. It's like swallowing helium every time you go deeper. So they have to have these individual name-like whistles so that they know who's who. And those will carry no matter what depth they're at. How long is a dolphin's lifespan? So a new paper just came out uh, by a colleague of mine, Kelly Yacola, uh, Dolphin Research Center. And under human care, they can live upwards of, uh, did I say about, th I think it was 30-some years was the mean. So that's under human care. Now there are some dolphins that I've worked with who are in their 50s, some dolphins I've worked with in their 40s, so they can get up to that, those levels. But there's a big problem in trying to measure this, and that is it's very hard to be a baby dolphin. You are born, you are an air breather, you have to go breathe your first gulps of air. No baby dolphin that is weak can survive unless humans intervene. Mm -hmm because if you can't get to the surface on your own, mom will steer you, but she can't push you all the way to the top. So if you can't get up to the top, you're not gonna make it. So immediately, only about 50% of dolphins survive the first year. Wow. Then once you get over that number of, of dolphins that die in that first year, it's some, in the wild, it's somewhere between 20 and 25 years old, but that's old data. Those are data from the 90s. It just has not been looked at in a compelling way outside of human care recently. So the documentary Blackfish mm -hmm. came out several years ago now. Mm -hmm. I know that got a lot of attention sure uh, did. about killer whales and SeaWorld and some of their practices. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. Well, the first thought here is we do not diagnose psychoses in animals. That is not something that is actually done. Psychosis is a very specific thing done for humans in those contexts. The use of that term psychosis in whales is done to elicit emotion. Mm -hmm. It is not done for any scientific reason. The individuals who were scientists in that documentary do not publish on this material uh, in terms of the scientific aspects of it. They're policy publishers. They, they publish on policy issues, but they don't tend to publish on actual animal behavior um, in wild cetaceans or in captive cetaceans anymore. So I have many criticisms of blackfish and the movement to release these animals in general. The one thing that we fail to understand when we talk about this is the fact that A, you cannot release a captive-born whale. That includes dolphins, any of them. It is against the Marine Mammal Protection Act to do so. And it would be cruel to do to that animal because these are cooperative hunters. Mm. They have to learn how to hunt from mom. If mom's been fed and they've been fed and they're past that critical period of development, no human's gonna be able to, no, I mean in general, no human can teach them how to hunt fish anyway. And they're not instinct driven on these questions. They're just not. They have to learn these things like going to school so we can't just assume they can just be released and survive. Mm -hmm. In fact, they probably would not. The people who did that documentary, some of them are the same people who were behind the release of the whale, Free Willy. Keiko is the dolphin's real name. And Keiko uh, spent, if I'm gonna get this right, spent a few years in a facility in Oregon and then a few years in a very small sea pen in Nor uh, outside of Norway. Maybe Iceland. And they would take them for walks, like an hour a day or so. And 
after about five years, one time he didn't come back to the boat. I thought, oh, he's rescued, he's freed now, he'll, he'll be all right. No, they found Keiko in a fishing village in Norway with kids riding on his back, <laughs> playing with people. Dangerous, actually. Mm. So it shouldn't have been done. Uh, Mark Simmons, who was one of the people involved in the Free Keiko Project, um, later f called this probably the reason he, the whale ended up dying, because it contracted pneumonia. And these whales can contract diseases from humans. Mm. So that's why in these facilities there's a lot of process of sterilization for things. So kids riding on his back, whale gets sick. They have to go pick up the whale because obviously you can't have kids riding on his back. Um, they try to make a makeshift sea pen. He died very quickly after that. So you really do need to think about how you want to handle this in a real serious way. Um, we owe the animals that are under human care the best care possible. And we need to think about what that means. And in some cases that means really taking a strong look at not what would make us feel better, but what is really better for the animals. Mm -hmm. Especially those animals now, because the vast majority of them are now born under human care. They don't, in North America, people do not go out and collect whales and dolphins from the wild anymore. Uh, people don't know that. Um, but because we don't go out and collect these animals and they're born under human care, these animals are really like now fourth generation not having anything to do with the wild. So some people say, okay, well, let's build sea pens and put them out on sea pens. Well, the problem with sea pens is they're actually way more expensive than people think. And so you're gonna end up having to spend a ton of money on that. And then something that we actually study a lot in our department is eutrophication. The idea that if you put a lot of fertilizer in certain areas, you end up having an ecological mess. Well, these are big animals need a lot of fish, need a lot of products, and you can't necessarily filter that water. So mm -hmm. if they're all just pooping in the same spot, you're gonna create these kind of ecological dead zones where these whales are. There's a lot of issues with trying to put them all in sea pens, um, mostly related to cost. The other thing too is you're never gonna put a sea pen anywhere near human civilization because anywhere where there's people, there's pollution. So now you gotta figure out how you're gonna get out to that sea pen and who's gonna pay for it. So these are all very real considerations. Um, I'm all for taking the animals where they are and using science and using research to give them the best lives possible. Um, so developing new in acoustic enrichment techniques, letting the whales call each other from facility to facility that know each other. We can, we can now play Skype with dolphins. Wow. We can do all that stuff with them now. It's not, and, and you know, these dolphins have real relationships with the humans that work with them. To take them away from their human families would be pretty bad too. So there's all these things to think about. It's a very complex issue, and that documentary does not present it as complex mm. as the issue actually is. Mm. You recently won a Course Hero Woodrow Wilson Excellence in Teaching Fellowship. I know one in my year and a half in this role, one thing that has come up over and over when I've talked to faculty and administrators is uh, we want to be excellent teachers as well as research. Research right. a lot of times gets the attention, yep. but teaching is very important. Obviously it's important to you or you mm -hmm. wouldn't have won this. Yep. Uh, can you talk about that? Because I think for people mm -hmm. who aren't faculty, the when you're getting a college degree, 
you're seeing faculty as teachers. Right. And you know they do research, but if you're not going to get a graduate degree, you're probably not even paying attention to that. You may not, right. And, and that's, for our graduate students, it's always very important that our faculty are active researchers. And what our undergraduates may not see is it's actually important for them too, because when I'm doing these types of research questions, a lot of it is fueled by undergraduates who come up with these really good ideas. One of my uh, invertebrate zoology groups did a presentation on the death's head moth. And they sat there and they came up with this really interesting idea because moths are usually very quiet. And here's this moth making a ton of noise, flies into beehives, makes a ton of noise, and then steals the honey. Okay, and this is the moth from the poster from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So if you yeah, that's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah, that's what it is. And this is unusual. I mean, this is weird. And none of the explanations worked. And so, okay, I was like, this is what you guys need to work on. This needs to be your final project for invertebrate zoology. And we had them in the soundproof chamber in the basement of uh, Engineering North with the mechanical engineer team working on the playback experiments with the moth and, and bat sounds trying to create this what we call a masking effect where the sound waves oppose each other, possibly finding new technologies of radar jamming because moths and bats are, you know, predator-prey kind of thing. Mm. And so here was this really cool student-led, student-driven research project that came out of this. And if I'm not a good researcher that integrates research into the teaching, I'm not able to help them with that. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I see my role, is to help facilitate the development of undergraduate researchers. And that was the part I think that the Course Hero people and the Woodrow Wilson people were really happy with, was the idea that I was taking undergraduates and bringing them into the process of research on campus here, because we are good researchers. We're a really good research campus. And we should be bringing our undergraduates into that process. And so that's, the, I mean, that's how I structure my courses, is to make them included. And then they see the value of when they're, when the faculty member they have is off doing something with research, they can hopefully see some of the value of that work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if that faculty member can bring that into the classroom, all the better. So that's kind of my approach to it, is to really integrate research and teaching into where one and uh, you don't know where one begins and one ends is right. kind of the way I see it. And it sounds like uh, you're essentially crowdsourcing your your research. I mean, at least the thinking behind how to do the research. It helps. It, it There is that side benefit of students, you know, when they come in not having any real um, expectations one way or another, that is a really cool perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, the student can come in and just see the world and say, well, I didn't know that this was important. Ah, you stumbled into something that I would have never seen because I was so blinded by my experience that I never bothered to look that way. So I find the collaborations with undergraduates fantastic, uh, especially at OSU. I think these are students who are hardworking, they're motivated, and they're genuinely ready to do this type of work, uh, more so than some of the other places I've been. So I'm really, I'm always very excited to work with OSU undergrads. They challenge those assumptions like elephants have a long memory. That's right. right. That we've all just accepted. They would, yeah. And they're sitting there like, well, I didn't find any papers on that, Dr. Brock. And I'm like, you got it. Time to write one. And, you know, some of my publications on there were actually with my undergraduate students. 
So we've actually gotten students, undergraduates who've been published in high quality journals now. And if know. they are do end up going on to get a graduate, postgraduate degree. Mm -hmm. um, boy, what a great start to yeah. already have a publication like that. Yeah, and in fact, the, one of the things that kind of separates a lot of graduate students is the GRFPs, the Graduate Research Fellowship uh, Program from the NSF. And one of the big criteria that I saw last year that was excluding students from it was that they did not have publications. We're already demanding our undergraduates are published authors in science already. So if we're not incorporating undergraduates into research, we're not doing our jobs to prepare them for those graduate student positions of the future. I want to thank Jason Bruck for joining me. We'll be back soon with another episode. And now, as always, we end by asking our guest, how are the arts and sciences making the world better? So one of, one of my big idols on this planet is Walt Disney. I was always really impressed with him as a person interested in both the arts and the sciences. So here's a guy who started a lot similar to the way I did. My first job, again, you know, drawing cartoons. He was drawing cartoons, so I really identified with him on that front. And then I found out a little bit about him, you know, kind of moving forward in terms of his interests in the world. He became, later in his life, very much a futurist. And we have him to thank for a lot of the inspiration behind the moon landing. He would tour the rocket fields with Werner von Braun, the German rocket scientist who drove NASA for us before NASA was NASA. And here was a man born of the arts who drove our sciences, who drove the 1960s and 70s, you know, in terms of our space exploration, the manned space program. And to me, that's kind of how I idolize the mix of both. Um, you're never going to be an effective scientist if you can't capture everyone's imagination. You need to be able to do that, and the best way I've found to do that is through the arts. So, you know, when I talk to, you know, school groups, you know, I'm always bringing in my cartoons into that, you know, drawing, you know, the, the characters of the research story that I want to tell, you know, in this comic fashion so that they can understand what the big questions that we're trying to ask. The arts are just a way of communicating and the sciences are a way of exploring. And yet, the arts can be a way of exploring and the science is a way of communicating. They, they're both feeding into each other if you're doing it right. And they only can make positive effects on each other you know, if you're able to master both um, in, in this kind of communication-focused world we live in. So to me, the arts and the sciences are what drive the future, both. Um, and in some ways an equal measure. And that's a weird thing sometimes for a scientist to say, but I very much appreciate the imagination component of science. And that is always best stimulated sometimes through artistic uh, visions. I mean, you watch science fiction, you read science fiction, you, you see what a future could be, and then the scientists can go out and help drive that. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. When I was a kid, I remember going to Disney World and I knew what my career was going to be because I went to the Living Seas at Epcot Center, which was this kind of pseudo-research base that you used to get into this fake elevator that would take you deep below the ocean, and then you would walk in this sea base uh, before Nemo kind of invaded the whole thing. Now it's all Nemo, right? But uh, you, you used to see this world, and you know, as a small kid, that's how I imagined, oh yeah, I'm going to live in a undersea 
sea base and I'm going to research dolphins and I'm going to do all the things there. And then fast forward, I'm getting my PhD and I'm at Disney World at Epcot Center working with the dolphins. <laughs> so it actually happened um, uh, in exactly that way. So, you know, never underestimate the value of the arts to drive the imagination that pushes science forward. Thank you.